look over here at Ron, we have a praise report. Debbie had the baby. Everything's great. If Ron falls asleep, he's got every good excuse in the world. <laughs> Little Byron. Byron is his name. Looks like the typical Leferrier kid. You know Precious Moments modeled their models after Leferrier's kids. I mean, cute kids. I came in Friday afternoon, Kathy said, Leferrier's had their baby. 12-2, or 12-10. I said, 12-10? She said, that was the time. That was the time. <laughs> oh, man, I just started to hurt. <laughs> Anyhow. Those of you who have been coming here for a while know that we are at the beginning of a spiritual warfare series. In the month of May, we've been going through kind of a war college. Uh, the first part of it has been uh, more laying a theological and theoretical base for spiritual warfare. Now we're getting into the practical stuff when we start talking about what weapons do we have in the arsenal and how do you approach these things. It is important to remember... Uh, during this spiritual warfare, that Satan's character is not to go against God, but to negate God. Remember, we are not working in a dualistic universe where, where uh, evil is a positive thing that battles good with almost equal force. Evil is that which will take away from or cause good to stumble so that the good cannot be accomplished. Therefore, our uh, strategy is not to go against Satan. It's to accomplish the works that God has given us to do. John 15, 16 says, Jesus says, You didn't choose me. I chose you. That you might be fruitful and that your fruit might remain. Therefore, ask me of whatever you will and I will give it. So therefore, our uh, spiritual warfare is not to go against Satan. It's to accomplish the works of God. That's how you win spiritual warfare. My little 10-year-old boy says, Dad, is it wrong to uh, just think about punching Satan's lights out? I mean, he gets real mad, you know. And I don't know, when you were 10, when I was 10, I, w I was into drawing war stuff, tanks and planes and bombing people and blood coming out of the side of the head and all that. And I think it has something to do with becoming a man or something, and, and, uh, or becoming frightened or something. I don't know, but anyhow, I just wanted to... Uh, and and kind of, that's what kind of worries Satan. Well, that misses the point. The point is that we were sent to do the works of the Heavenly Father. That is spiritual victory. That is winning at spiritual warfare. And therefore, if we walk through and we think that spiritual warfare is merely being more aggressive than the other side, we have uh, basically capitulated to the other side. Now, I want to talk about what weapons are in our arsenal this morning, both defensive and offensive weapons. But first, I want to remind us that this is not like any other war. Because we begin with victory. We begin by being victorious. Remember in Scripture that Satan has already been defeated. Christ has nailed to the cross. Well, look in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2. It's talking to about us and, our, and the forgiveness of our transgressions. And how, how Christ, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which, has, which was hostile to us. The decree was hostile to us. That's coming from the other side. That's the adversary. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is, the heavenly rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So therefore, Christ has victory. John 12:14 says, this is the judgment right now. Satan is cast out. Jesus said that before he died. Satan is cast out. It is a fait accompli. Christ has victory. We have position by our relationship with Christ, with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 We are seated with him, not down on earth, but where? Positionally, we are in the heavenly places. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. So even though we have not had that imparted to us yet in our experience, it is still imputed to us by our position with Christ. And it's not only Christ has the victory and we have position with Him, but we have been given specific authority to have victory daily over the spiritual battles of this world. If you want a scripture for that, you will turn to Luke 10. And this is given to all of the, this is given to all of the uh, um, disciples. Seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now you say, now you say Satan's defeated. Why is he still so strong? Well, just as there is a, is a, a, a moment of time between lightning and thunder, depending on how far away that lightning is, well, we're talking eternal Punishment. We're talking eternity and where we are right now, depending on how far away we are from that. So there is a lapse of time there where you feel the effects and you know for sure the effects. I don't know how many of you have ever killed a snapping turtle. Probably most of you have, haven't you? <laughs> Just chopped off its head. You ever see? Well, when I was little... <laughs> I'm sorry. When I was little, my grandfather, who was a veterinarian taught me all about animals. He loved animals, you know. And, uh, and this one particular snapping turtle had to go for somebody's soup or something, I don't know, but cut off the head. And said, now, Joey, I want you to watch something here. And here's this head severed from this body, and he sticks a little stick inside this snapping turtle's mouth, and the head goes, just grabs on it, bites that thing. It had already been killed. But the reflex was still there. And that's exactly what spiritual warfare is these days. It's the reflex that Satan still has. He still has a bite. He still is to be taken seriously. But he's ostensibly a dead turtle. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess carried that illustration a little too far there. But it says in here, I have given you authority. Over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice uh, in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, before we go into the, uh, the weapons um, uh, and the explanation of those weapons, would you pray with me? Because I know that there can be many distractions in a service like this. I know Satan would love nothing more than to, to divert our attention from what is about to be said. So let's just... Let's gather up in prayer and, uh, and uh, uh, build a hedge around here. Lord, help us to listen to your word. Your word is final. And it is mighty to accomplish whatever it sets to do. So set a work in our hearts today by the implantation of the word from your mouth so that we do not depend on flesh and blood, 
but we depend on what you have established. We come against those spirits that would divert us, that would um, distract us. And we say to them, you have no place here. This is God's house. We are God's people. And so therefore, Lord Jesus, come and build around us what we need to pay attention to you. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, if you turn to Ephesians 6, as you're doing that, just let me read to you 2 Corinthians 10.4 so you'll know where this message is coming from this morning. Starting with 3, actually. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That is, for the pulling down of strongholds. And you will learn later on, strongholds are patterns of thought and patterns of habit in our lives that bring us down. And so I want to, before we even get to our targets, I want to tell you what we have in our arsenal. All right? First of all, in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might, uh, in, the, in the strength of His might. That's very important, in the strength of His might. We do not fight with our own strength. The battle is the Lord's. We've got to fight with His strength. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist the evil in the day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having... And now we, now we begin to talk about the armor of God. And by the way, if you want to teach your kids about the armor of God, there are several neat books in Christian bookstores. There's a lady... In, in this congregation that wrote uh, and published a book by uh, through Creation House called uh, it's about a little animal by the name Dilla by the name of Dilla and he puts on the armor of God and he becomes Armadilla isn't, <laughs> isn't that cute uh, but anyhow these these principles can be taken in a very childlike uh, fashion uh, which is exactly what we're about to do um, so there there isn't too early a time to be able to teach your children these things. Um, okay, it says, having girded your loins with truth. Now, in, in the, the, the symbolism here, in the old days, in the armor, the, the belt that fastened around, everything was fastened to the belt. And so it was, the, it was the foundational garment. And it is very important when you are about to go against that which is distracting you. And again, you don't go against it, you, you go through it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 are very appropriate here, where it talks about, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, see, and what? Run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and pioneer of our faith. So therefore, again, let me remind you, when we're talking spiritual warfare, we're talking following Jesus. We're not talking about diverting our attention to Satan. But the, the, the truth is the foundational garment. And what you must remember as Christians is that you must never get caught up in the little Christianese battles that little Christian division groups have 
as to what is the correct theology, what is the correct this, what is the correct that. You must always go after, Lord, what is your truth? And as long as you're doing that, you will have so many less distractions and you will be at a part of the game that you never thought you would when you were simply in competition with the devil. I remember seeing a baseball game one time. And I remember that it was one of those just nail biters. I mean to tell you, uh, they were playing extra innings and they came down and, and, the, and the team at bat was one run down and, and uh, uh, bases loaded and this guy lines a, a drive to left field. This left fielder picked up that ball. You've never seen such a throw in your life and winged this sucker. I mean, it didn't arch. It went straight and winged this, and to the catcher. And the catcher gets the ball Tags the guy, sliding into home, and dust just flies everywhere. Well, none of us can see what happened. But the umpire says, he's out, which ends the game and loses the game. See? Now, what happened was the catcher had dropped the ball. Nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. The umpire didn't see it. The other team didn't see it. Of course, everybody emptied the dugouts and they were arguing and no, he was safe. No, he's not. Of course, nobody saw it in anything. They just wanted to argue. So here's this kid knowing the truth, knowing that if he fesses up, his team is a goner. But he turns around to the umpire in the midst of all of that and says, Sir, he wasn't out. I dropped the ball. I cannot tell you what happened to that ball game I cannot tell you what happened in the lives of those people and the expressions on their faces. That ball game reached a whole different proportion. Suddenly, everybody remembered what was important about baseball. And it wasn't who won or lost. It, it, it was about building the character of kids. It was about doing what is right. It was about playing fair and all of those things. You know, all of the basics. It was a wonderful thing. Well, if you go through any battle you have, not guarding your own position, but simply wanting to get to the truth, you will win. Because if you stand on the side of the truth, you can't be defeated. Secondly, it says, um, putting on, uh, where is it? And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, at first glance, most people would say, well, righteousness is goodness, so what this means is that we have to be good in order to win spiritually. Well, <laughs> it's good to be good. It's a wonderful thing to be good. But etymologically, the word righteousness throughout the Scripture means more than being good or meeting up to a certain ethical standard. Righteousness literally means fulfilling the demands of a relationship. Now, remember what Satan's wiles are as far as our relationship. He wants to break our relationships down, doesn't he? And he wants to put them in categories of this is right and this is wrong and he wants, us to, he wants us to get isolated so that we will think that to be Christian really literally means just behaving in a certain way. When really being Christian means having a relationship with God. That's the basis of righteousness. And when we fulfill the demands of the relationships that God has put into our lives, when we are true and honorable in those demands, whether or not we think they have anything to do with God, then we have won 
again spiritually. We have had spiritual victory. I remember this, this old legend of, of Abraham in, in his tent and, and this guy, uh, this stranger comes and he smells bad and he, he looks bad. And, but the, of course the Jewish custom is that you always show hospitality. That's what you do. It's a law. And so Abraham takes him into the tent, you know, and he washes him. And, and uh, you know, this guy's totally ungrateful, puts food before him, and the guy just tears into the food without ever saying his prayers, his proper prayers. And Abraham looks at him and says, you have dishonored God, you know. I mean, he's kind of frustrated with the guy anyhow, kind of irritated, looking for something wrong here. He says, you, are, you have dishonored God. And he looks at Abraham and says, I don't believe in God. Abraham gives his biggest saucers. He picks this guy up and does what he's been wanting to do for the last hour and a half, throws him out of the tent, sits down, all self-righteous that he has stood against the infidel. The voice of God comes to him. Abraham, what did you just do? I defended you, God. That guy didn't believe in you. I just threw him out of my tent. I have nothing to do with him. The voice of God comes back to Abraham. Abraham, I've been putting up with that guy for 67 years. You couldn't put him up, up with him for one night. Righteousness is fulfilling the demands of the relationship without getting so entangled in judgment that we can't carry through on the character of God. That's why the breastplate has to do with our heart, has to do with that, that which is true in us. So when you're going through spiritual warfare, be sure that you are staying true in your relationships and doing in practice what the Lord Jesus would do in reality. Okay, let's go on. I know I've got way too many stories for this morning, but I love this kind of stuff. And I know you've probably heard 15,000 sermons on the armor of God and what it all means, but this is just my own personal interpretation. Take it or leave it, but you better take it. Have, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, shodding your feet means literally, this is a, you get this picture of shoes or boots, so that you can move in battle. But it almost sounds antithetical, having the gospel of peace to move in battle. Well, this is the kind of peace that is an inner peace, that has a contentment that has its answer no matter what the circumstances. That's how we need to go into battle. Most of us go into battle very, very uh, frustrated and angry and antagonistic. That's how, we, that's how we see ourselves in battle. But spiritually, spiritually, if you can just maintain the peace. I, I remember skiing on a, water skiing on a lake, a Sweetwater Lake in Indiana. One time it was like Memorial Day weekend and everybody was on this lake. I mean, there were a thousand boats and everybody had skiers and we were all going in and we were trying desperately to have fun. I mean, we were, and you, it, water skiing is fun, you know, and I can't do it. You know, some of those guys were doing it on one ski and turning around and, you know, going like this. And, I mean, they were really good, you know, going, you know, skiing on their shoulder or whatever you do, you know, skiing down on their knees, you know, skiing on their nose, you know, whatever. These guys were real good. Well, I can't, I'm a kind of a clunker. I can, I can only do it with two skis, but have a lot of fun when I do it. And we, so I was going outside the wake, you know, when the boat turns, you know, you go outside and you go 80 miles an hour and you're thinking, I'm going to die! You know, it's just fun. It just gives you a real rush. Well, there were so many, so many ski boats on this lake. We were, we were just about killing each other. 
in the middle of this lake, there is one two-person sailboat trying to make its way across this lake. And we must have passed them a dozen times, and every time we passed them, I'd look at the expression on these people's faces that were in the sailboat, and they're just going... They're just watching, not knowing that they could be killed at any moment. I couldn't... You know, we got done with that day, and I'd, I'd watched all of the, you know, the get out of our wake, and, you know, it's my turn to ski, and this is fun, I think I'm going to throw up, I've had so much fun, and, you know, watched all of that frenzy. And I couldn't get those people's faces out of my mind. What were they smiling about? Well, they just had kind of a peace I didn't have. You know, they were they were taking all of this in. Everybody was frantic to accomplish whatever they were. And these people just had this inner peace. When you go into battle, that inner peace is what you need. See? If you don't you don't win or lose, you have peace. You have that you have the shalom, the completeness that's already there. Therefore you can't lose. Okay. So that is the, in my interpretation of that, shod in your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, the shield of faith, uh, literally, in, in, in the armor, was something that, uh, they had two sizes of shields, and, and uh, there's all kinds of strategy, which, I, which is not especially germane to, to our conversation this morning. But let me, let me tell you what I think of when I think of the shield of faith. What really can quench those thoughts, those accusations, those doubts, those hostilities, those threats. Those threats. I really juice up when I talk about spiritual warfare. Those threats that Satan sends against us and makes us fearful. Faith, again needs to be a relational thing where we are literally laying our lives in the arms of a trustworthy father. <clears throat> I saw one time in my pool a, a, a kid, just a little nuffer, that had his arms around his dad, Yankee kid, wasn't used to swimming pools. And so he was kind of frightened, see? And, and the dad was trying to get him not to be afraid of the water. Just a little bitty kid. And so he's at about in the three-foot end, you know, and the dad kept dipping him down. You know, you go down a little bit further, and you keep sweet-talking the kid, and finally he just kind of relaxes a little bit. Systematic desensitization. Go, it kind of loosens up a little bit, and then he's okay. Now, the dad starts walking out to the deep end. Well, you know what happens to the kid, don't you? And he's squeezing the dad's neck. I mean, the veins are popping out and everything on the dad's neck. I mean, he's squeezing the dad's neck. And the dad himself can't touch anymore. He's just kind of floating out in the deep end. And the deeper it gets, the more the kid panics. Now, the thought occurred to me, why would the kid be any more panicked in the deep water than he was in the shallow water? Because if the dad would have dropped the kid in the shallow water, he'd have drowned anyhow. Right? He had the same dependence on the father when things were going okay and they didn't look too threatening as he did when things looked terribly threatening. Let me ask you the same question. Why is it that we get so intimidated when huge problems come along? When really we have the same dependence 
on the Father for our everyday living. We would drown without him supporting us every day. Give us this day our daily bread if he wasn't giving it to us every day. We would be in deep weeds, wouldn't we? Well, what makes you think he's going to change his character when we get in the deep water? we got the same father, the same hold, the same kid. No reason to panic. That, to me, is the shield of faith. That is the holding on to the one who will support us because he always has. And he's not going to change his character. Okay, what else do we have in our arsenal? We have the helmet of salvation. In addition to all these things, uh, uh, taking up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation. To me, the helmet of salvation is there's nothing Satan loves to do more than play mind games with us. I've watched a hundred new Christians, people just accept Christ, and all of a sudden they get all of these doubts they've never had before. You know, they, and a matter of fact, they are sure, they are more sure of their relationship before they became a Christian than they are after they became a Christian. Do you ever see that? I mean, there are people that say, I mean, they're totally confident. They don't know the Lord. They've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. How, you think you're going to go ahead? Sure I am. You know, hey, the big guy upstairs knows me. Total confidence in their relationship. After you become a Christian, you go, well, I don't know. I think I just lost my salvation. You know, scared to death. Scared to death. So you got to have something that keeps Satan from sending those missiles into your plan with your mind. And that's the helmet of salvation. That is the security of knowing you're standing with God. I saw a, a, a Peanuts cartoon one. <laughs> it's so cute. Uh, you know, Linus is talking with little Sally or whatever her name is. And, and you know how kids mimic what adults say, you know. And he's looking at Sally and says, Boy, Sally, if we only knew then what we know now, wouldn't we really be something? And this little Sally's looking at him going, what do we know now? <laughs> Christians need to know what they know now. You need to hold on to it. What you know now, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is that's a done deal. You need to know that. And then you have the firm, firm protection of mind games that Satan may play with the most basic, most important decision in your life. If you're saved, you're saved. Now, let's, what else do we have? Let me do a couple of these together. I'm, I'm, I'm running way over time. I'm sorry, but I, I love to, to tell these stories, and, and, uh, and uh, I think they help you remember the points. Let's talk about things that are not in Ephesians 6. Let's talk about... Uh, we're going to get to the word in a minute because that's an offensive weapon. Here are two more defensive weapons. Let me link, there's three more, but let me link two of them together. Resistance, a la James 4, 7. Therefore, submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. So resistance is one part. And the other part is our own flight. Where it talks in, in uh, 1 Timothy 6, 11, it says, it says uh, flee these things. It's talking about temptations. Flee these things. Now, you're sitting there thinking... He just told us we had victory. He just told us God could beat anything. What in the world are we doing running from anything? Well, I don't know about you, but I have a real problem not with what God will give me, but what I ask for. 
See, God is always ready to give me much more than I'm ready to receive. And if I hang around an area of temptation for very long, sooner or later, it's not going to be that God can't conquer it. It's going to be that I don't want God to conquer it because I want the temptation more. And so for therefore, the resistance for me is the getting as much space between me and that temptation as I possibly can because I know myself too well. And if I hang around it for very long, I'm going to go down with it. That's just my character. After 22 years of being a Christian, I still will go down with the temptation if I hang around it very long. I know myself. And so I put my I put distance. I'm scared. I'm, I'm afraid of my own, not of God's strength. I mean, not of, not of what he can do, but what I will let him do and what I will not let him do. I know my character. My heart is still deceitful. Let me tell you a story about uh, uh, a guy who was watching the ice flow. This is a spring, Niagara Falls, the ice is breaking up. And these, this ice is, he's just watching the river and, 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 and right standing right at the crest of where the water goes over the Great Falls. And he says all of the seagulls are coming and they are flying down because they see little animals that have been frozen in this ice. Little fish and different animals that have been frozen in this ice. And so they're flying down and they're pecking at the ice. And they just mostly keep in flight and try to peck at the ice and then they go right back up. But he watches this one seagull who becomes especially focused on this fish that is in this ice. And he's pecking and he's pecking and he's pecking trying to get that fish out, see? Not paying attention to the falls, it doesn't look like. And the guy's starting to think to himself, this thing's about ready to go over the falls. This bird better fly off. Well, it comes within a few feet of the falls, and sure enough, the bird sees it and spreads its wing and tries to fly. But it can't. Because why? He has stood there so long, his claws are frozen into that ice. And so he goes down with the ice. It's exactly what happens in our lives when we stick around temptation too long, when we become too focused on something. It's when we want to fly, we can't because we're frozen to it. We're frozen because we've chosen to stay with it too long. Okay, so that is a very important defense. And there's also the defense of binding. You know, there's, there are words, uh, uh, several... Um, um, uh, references in Scripture about binding Satan, that is, putting up fences. Now, I've got to be very careful here when I talk about this because people tend to use spiritual warfare and Christianese in a magical sense. And so I want to tell you all the way along, there is nothing magical about this. And if you do not have the character of Christ in your life, this won't work. See? The binding comes from the Spirit of Christ who lives in you. When I, when I do, I, I run about three or four times a week. I don't run. I waddle three or four times a week and not very fast. But there's one dog on my route that always try, I mean, he has worn a path in the yard and everybody that tries to, that comes by, boy, this dog is after him. I mean, he would kill if he could. And he's got this path worn in this yard to where he just comes to the fence and he goes, rah, 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 rah. tries to get at you. There is a sense in Scripture where Jesus talks about binding the strong man so that you can get out of his household what you need to and about how Jesus has bound the strong man. In, in Matthew uh, 16, 
he talks about, uh, he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for such a... You know, after he confesses him Christ. Uh, he says, On you I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the very next verse he says, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a very real sense in which if there is an area of your life that Satan seems to have reign over, you can, in the authority of Christ, bind him. You can build up the fence. You have the spiritual power to do that. But remember, it is not just, Satan, I bind you. It's not one of those. I mean, it is, it is a spiritual um, outgoing. It's not just a magical thing. Let me tell you some more stuff that's not just magical. Um, uh, let's get over to the offensive part. Let's get into the offensive weapons. First of all, the offensive weapons we have begin with the Word of God. Um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, that's the only offensive weapon in this particular passage. The Word of God is something that all of us can use that will last forever. Now, word in this passage is rhema. It's not logos. It's not the principle. It is the utterance. It is the utterance. Therefore, it is very, very important that, number one, you receive the Word of God as a personal utterance in your life. It's not just picking it up and memorizing it, not letting it touch your, your life, and then using it as a magic formula, abracadabra. That's not the Word of God. The Word of God comes when you have heard it personally. That's when it is in you, and when you have uttered it personally, that's when it goes out of you. When you are living it, then that Word of God takes on power. Remember in Matthew 4, where Jesus uttered Scripture back to Satan. That was, that was his form of of fighting Satan. So that's one offensive weapon you have. When you come to a situation, but see, to even use that, you have to know the Word of God, don't you? You have to read the Word of God. So therefore, that is a weapon you can have, but unless you read the Word of God, you won't have. Number two, the name of Christ. And again here, taking the name of Christ is not a magical thing. The name of Christ denotes the character of Christ. And in, in uh, um, Acts 16, 18, Paul turns around to the, the woman with the spirit of divination and says, In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And the demon had to obey. But three chapters later, there's some Jewish guys hanging out, watching Paul do this. They kind of like that stuff. See? They kind of like that stuff. And so, <laughs> they, they think they're going to try that. So they go to this one guy who is possessed, and they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, come on out. Come on. Come on. Come on. You got to now. In the name of Jesus Christ. This guy looks at him, and the spirit speaks out of his mouth. The demonic spirit says, Jesus I know. Paul I know. Who are you? Boy, about that guy, about that time, this guy, you can just hear him thinking, whoa, we're in trouble now. Sure enough, this guy takes them and beats the stuffings out of them. The, the Bible says they ran away naked and wounded. Look, don't go messing in spiritual things. 
If you haven't got the character of Christ living in you, if he is not your experience, if you just try and use this, you know, see what we can do here, Lord. Can we levitate a table over there? Let's see if we can do this. Don't do that. That is stupid. It is the character of Christ that is the power of Christ. Not just the name as in knowing how to pronounce Jesus. Okay, let's go on. Um, let me give you just a couple of more. Okay, because there, there's, there's, there's some others that I'll work in later. Praise. It is very important. Praise is so important. And not, in Second Chronicles uh, 20, uh, verses 21 and 22, they're fighting a war. Guess who they send out first? The singers. <laughs> this is so good for people like me because I know they'd never send me out first. It'd, it'd make me wait till later. Don't do that. You know, we'll get beat up if you go out. But they send out the people who really can sing and dance and praise and so on and so forth. That is great. Now let me again caution you, or not, not a caution you, even exhort you to know that praise is more than just getting happy. It is getting happy. I love the praise songs we do. I love up songs. I love for my spirit to be celebrative. I love that. Um, I love to watch other people dance and sing and joy. Um, we went down to this, a uh, bunch of us went down to the men's prayer thing the other day. And uh, and it was neat, or Saturday, it was neat to have all of these other churches that were praying for the city of Orlando. And my two older boys wanted to go, one's 16, one's 14. And they wanted to go, they wanted to pray for the city of Orlando. I said, great, let's go, you know. And so there was, I don't know how many guys from this church, quite a few guys from this church went down. Got down there, evidently we were the only church that was not explicitly charismatic. I mean, all the rest of them, I think, were explicitly and exclusively charismatic. We have lots of charismatic folks come here, but we're not exclusively charismatic. And my boys have never been. I mean, Becky and I have been lots of charismatic Pentecostal churches. We've seen it all. These two had never seen any of that. So here we go, you know. I mean, it's starting to rev up, you know. Starting to go where content, content starts to take a back seat and rhythm crawls in front. You know, you know how that is, and you just start you start going, you know. And so the, I, I look over and the boys are praying like this. <laughs> and we have a guy who gets up and gives a prophecy, and you know, and there's a guy in front just shouting for all he's worth, you know. Well, the thing ended, you know, and we start we're walking back around the lake, and we get about halfway around, and Josh goes, "So what was that? <laughs> what was going on there?" I said they were just shouting and celebrating, and that's how some people worship. And they were just, you know, they were just fully into it. And he goes, "Okay, I'll buy that," you know. But, uh, but what I want to say is that is joy, but that's not all of joy. That is praise, but that's not all of praise. There is something that is deeper than even that. There's a, there is an appreciation for who God is. There is a link to God that goes beyond happy emotions. Let me tell you a story about a couple who had been married a long, long time, and they hadn't had an ideal relationship, but they had been committed to one another. They were righteous. They were fulfilling the demands of their relationship, and they had come at the end of their life to a very deep appreciation for one another's people. Nothing false, nothing blind, uh, but just an appreciation with all the faults of who the other person was. And they were walking hand in hand one day down through a city, a certain city, and came upon a fountain. 
And the fountain was very evidently being used as a wishing well because of all of the coins in the, in the water. So this old guy stops there. He's holding his wife's hand. Puts his hand in his pocket, you know. Comes up with one coin. Thinks for a minute. Throws it in. His wife does not ask the obvious question. She just looks at him and she says, I hope your fondest wish comes true. And then he looked at her deep into her eyes and he said, it already has. I'm just paying up. That's praise. That's praise. That's a level deeper than joy and happiness and giddiness. That is deep appreciation. And when we have that with God, who can touch us? See? One more. Prayer. This is so important. Prayer. Prayer is our delivery system. When you meet here this afternoon or when you go down and pray on the, on the life chain or if you went with us yesterday, we are just beginning to build up literally an army of prayer in this city because it is the delivery system. Now I know, I'm sorry if I offend you with this, we are not a great prayer church yet. We're just not. But I also know that we will get as far spiritually as we get with our prayer lives. It is just that simple. And I know that as, as flesh and blood we are given to be more active or more political about things. I, I, you know, I've, I got a little skittish in that, that people were calling, we, we started out with this thing, great idea of Mark Rutland's and, and started out in the first meeting. We said, well, let's just, somebody said, let's just call in the media and really put on a presentation here of prayer. I said, wait, wait. Are we going to show or are we going to pray? You've got, you've got to, um, next service, I won't give myself credit for that. I'll give somebody else, I'll just say somebody said that that's an awful thing to do. Um, but you've got to decide what has the power. Does the prayer have the power or does the media show calling in the secular stations and showing all how all of the Christians are united? You've got to decide. Now, all of that's not wrong, and I can see the political implications and so on and so forth, but basically, are we going to be Christians who really believe that prayer changes things? Or are we just going to use prayer events to show people how united we are? That I want for us to know that prayer changes things so that we will not get so enamored with our busyness that we will forget to pray. Some years ago, last story, I quit, I quit. Some years ago, there was a, a float. I think it was in the Rose Parade. I can't remember the parade for sure. But you know, these gargantuan, gorgeous floats in these parades. And there was a float that had run out of gas and was holding up the entire parade. Here's this beautiful, gorgeous thing. Couldn't move because it didn't have any gas. They forgot to fill up the tank. And miles of the parade is backed up. Now, here's the irony of it. The float was funded and put on by the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, here is a car that represents billions and billions of gallons worth of gas, and it's run out of gas. 
What a perfect analogy for Christians these days. I see Christians so weary, I don't think I can make it another mile. Why not? We represent all the power in the universe. Bar none. If we're holding up the parade, it's just because we've forgotten to fill up. It's not because it's not available. It's just because we've forgotten to fill up. Let's take some time to pray. Right now. Let's do it. Let me ask you, if you want to if you want to come forward during this time, just for a few minutes, uh, let me ask you to consider praying about two things. Number one, if there's an area of your life that you are ready to do, I mean, you're ready to have God take over. You want for Him to come in. And you want Him to do the battle so that you can release that sin which so easily entangles you and you can run the race that is set before you. Let me ask you to pray about that this morning. Let me also ask you to pray if you have something that you want some other brother to agree with you on. Come pray with one of us up here.